Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I am at long last rejoined by Mark Alley. Hey, you look familiar. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm doing well. I guess I just assumed so much familiarity that I didn't give either of our titles. I'm an associate digital media producer here at CT. And Mark is our editor-in-chief, podcast host, all the above. All the above. Awesome. It's great that you're back, Mark. I'm glad to be back, finally. I'm not going to do that again, I decided. I missed it too much. Missed you too much. You just heard all these nice things that people were saying about it, and then you realized that you hadn't been on in a month. Exactly. Maybe were they not saying it about you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Still have that small ego that needs stroking. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So who's joining us today? Joining us today is Justin Holcomb. He is an ordained minister and adjunct professor of theology at uh, Reform Theological Seminary Orlando and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Much of his ministry has focused on issues related to sexual abuse and assault and sexual trafficking. He and his wife, Lindsay, have co-authored the Moody book, Is It My Fault? Hope and Healing for Those Suffering Domestic Violence, and earlier Crossway book, Rid of My Disgrace, Hope and Healing for Sexual Assault Victims. Uh, we're really glad to have you, Justin. I'm glad to be here, and uh, thank thank you for uh, talking about these tough topics. And and it's it's easier for people to avoid, and instead, you all are going straight to it. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, but I also feel like Justin, you're like the person who, when people have a hard topic, <laughs> they're like, "Oh, we know just the person." Uh, yeah, let's go call on them. Well, my uh, a third book my wife and I wrote was on uh, called "God Made All of Me." It's actually a kids' book. And it's subtitled uh, Helping Children Protect Their Bodies. So my wife and I have written topics on for sexual assault victims, domestic abuse victims, and child sexual abuse. So when when we go to dinner parties or picnics and people say, hey, what do you all do? We are the perpetual Debbie Downers of every gathering. And people just so, move away from you and on, onto another picnic table. Or they change topics pretty quickly. So, uh, But yeah, um, it's actually really interesting because I, I never thought of myself as the kind of survivor victims advocate is really because I married Lindsay. I was a seminary professor and religion professor at the University of Virginia, and we were dating and she was working as a case manager for a sexual assault crisis center. And then when we got married, she worked as a case manager for a domestic violence shelter. And it really emerged out of uh, being related to her and married to her and loving her and working together. So usually when bad things happen, I brace myself for the call of <laughs> talking about it. Well, I'm glad that we have filled that part that you were waiting for for this week. But for everyone who is not aware about the news this week, let us get into it right now. So in the year 2000, Paige Patterson, who currently serves as president of Southwestern Seminary, was asked about women who are abused by their husbands. Here's what he said. Quote, it depends on the level of abuse to some degree. I have never in my ministry counseled that anybody seek a divorce, and I do think that's always wrong counsel. There have been, however, an occasion or two when the level of the abuse was serious enough 
dangerous enough, immoral enough that I have counseled temporary separation and the seeking of help. I would urge you to understand that that should happen only in the most serious of cases. More often, when you face abuse, it is of a less serious variety. These comments recirculated on social media over the weekend, not surprisingly sparking fierce criticism over Patterson's remarks. Among the Southern Baptist leaders who distanced themselves from these comments were Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission President Russell Moore and Bible teacher Beth Moore. Patterson released a statement where he said that physical and or sexual abuse should be reported to the appropriate authorities, quote, as I have always done. He also stated that, quote, I have also said that I never recommended or prescribed divorce. How could I as a minister of the gospel? The Bible makes clear the way in which God views divorce. His statement seemed to suggest that abuse was not included in one of the ways in which divorce is biblically sanctioned. So this week on the podcast, we'd like to talk about if there's a real tension between pursuing a biblical marriage and taking a hard line on domestic violence. Before we get into our discussion today, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And Mark, from what I understand, you wrote an editorial in our May issue. Yeah, it was addressing the uh, evangelical habit or way of talking about things in which we say we pray and then we feel a leading of the Lord or or we sense it's God's will for our life, or we don't feel comfortable about it, the Spirit is not giving me any comfort about it. A lot of, a lot of word, language we use to suggest that we're trying to be in touch with Christ very personally, and we're trying to look for Him to lead us. But I also suggested how, A, that's part of our DNA, and a good one, but also how it can be really misleading and often short-circuit conversation we should have about what, in fact, is God's will in any given situation. And very often it has little to do with how we're feeling. So it was just a reminder to try to keep that in balance and some checks and balances we can use when we do sense God is leading us or not leading us in a certain direction. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to write it is just recently I've seen it misused in ways that essentially it was used as a way to cut off conversation about deeper ethical and moral issues that we should be talking about. Instead, people just said, well, I just felt the Lord led me as, as if that ended the conversation. Well, it doesn't end the conversation. It's part of the conversation, but it shouldn't end it. All right. Since we're not doing a whole podcast on that, I will not ask you more questions about that, because it sounds really interesting and definitely something that just most of us are in the spiritual habit of doing so. If you would like to read this editorial, you can do so by getting a copy of our May issue, and you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen, and Mark's editorial will be available both online and in our print publication. All right, Mark, in case you don't remember since you've been gone so long. We do something called a gut check, which is when people share how they are viscerally feeling about a particular topic. In this case, these Patterson remarks. What did you think? Yeah, I was. I felt really sad. I mean, he made some further remarks, which we haven't gotten time to go into, in which it seemed to suggest that he was uh, asking women who were beaten by their husbands to simply pray about it more earnestly and to take the abuse. Uh, his comments seemed to imply that. Whether he really meant that or not, I have no idea. But I have heard other ministers uh, and other Christian leaders in the past talk in such a way as if that is the first line of defense on this whole issue. And that makes me feel very sad. Uh, It does have a really long history, though. Uh, I'll tell you how long it is. I'm just reading Les Miserables right now, and there is a passage in there in which uh, one character is thinking about the the marriage of of a woman to a man who is an abuser. And he recognizes that he physically abuses this, his, this woman, 
and yet there isn't the, sh- the shock and disgust that we feel today in the narrative. It's as if this is the sort of thing bad husbands do, but there was no sense that he should intervene or he should do something about it. So it, there's the, there is this longstanding strain. It isn't, it isn't universal, I should say. There are, there's always been people who have objected fiercely to you know, spouse abuse, physical abuse especially. But there's another strain that just seems to think it's part and parcel of being married. Yeah, I got to say that I guess my first question was like, why don't we believe that today? Because clearly when he said these comments <laughs> did not hurt his career. He was not the president, from what I understand, of Southwestern at the time, but now he is the president. So there was no there, w- there was no type of just like, you know, outrage that happened that then destroyed anything that happened. So that means that like he was reflecting in many ways, seeming like the, the status quo, at least, you know, in his conservative denomination at the right, time. Right? right. And so the question that I have is like, why has our thinking on this changed so much that you know, 18 years later, we look at aghast at something that costs someone nothing professionally. So, Justin, I'm so glad that we have you here to ask all of these questions that we have. I do want to talk about history and get into that, but let's actually start with the Bible. Can you just let us know, you know, what does the Bible say when it comes to divorce in particular? The Bible says a few things about divorce, and some of the, it starts off in Deuteronomy 24, there's a passage about certificates of divorce, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and uh, Deuteronomy 21, and Malachi 2, there's references to divorce. And especially in Deuteronomy 24, there's actually, the, the whole idea of a certificate of divorce is to actually protect the woman in the marriage. And in divorce, so the big idea on the Bible in divorce is that divorce is not the ideal. And, and that's, I'm saying it very gently, that God doesn't want divorce to happen as the way forward as, as much as possible. The Bible does not want to weaken the bonds of, of marriage and increase the availability, just kind of like, you know, is it like a, you know, you know how Oprah gives out cars, like, well, a car for you and a car for you. It's not like, hey, a divorce for you and a divorce for you. We're just, we're happily just <laughs> tossing out divorces or something like that. So no one that reads the Bible would come away thinking, uh, that the Bible weakens the bonds of marriage and wants divorce. But uh, there there are a few with it. So Old Testament, there are numerous passages. There's there's actually one in Malachi, Malachi 2, which is traditionally understood as, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. The ESV, which is a pretty traditional, I don't like using the words liberal and conservative because those are political, but um, most people would say it's a conservative way of interpreting the Bible. But it's it's not trying to read into it its theology. It's actually trying to be as faithful to the text as possible. And the ESV translates it a little bit differently. The passage uh, 2.16 says, for I hate divorce. And perhaps the grammar actually is Malachi rebuking the men for hating, and then out of their hate, divorcing their wives for no good reason except to go take pagan women as their wives. So um, many people just kind of quote, God hates divorce, as if that's the final word on it. Um, even that passage is just a little bit... It, it, could be different by looking at the language, not trying to read into it. And then there's passages in Matthew 5, 31, 30, 30 through 32, which refers to Jesus saying, you know, don't divorce. If you do, you make your, your wife an adulterer. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 13 is another passage that some people refer to and say, yep, yeah, divorce is not an option. You know, if, you, if you're married to an unbeliever, you know, in, unless, you know, he abandons you, don't divorce him. But it, there's also some 
passages, Exodus 21, 10 through 12 or 13, uh, there, there's the idea that divorce is not the ideal, but except in the cases of adultery, abuse, and abandonment. And those were the three options. But so the, the Bible uh, does refer to divorce in a negative light, does not promote it, but it's a far cry to take. Many people take Jesus's word. So when, when Patterson refers to, you know, well, I, I'm a preacher of the gospel, I'd never counsel divorce. Well, he's probably thinking of Matthew 5, 31 through 32. And, and there's numerous views on that. One view is called the permanence view, that there's no there's no option for divorce. And that seems like what he's offering. But other very traditional understandings of the text have a view about adultery, that adultery is one means, the only way. If someone commits adultery, then they're out, or at least it's a biblical grounds for divorce. And another very traditional view is known as the sexual immorality view, which is uh, that it's not just adultery, but any type of sexual inappropriate sin, any type of sexual activity outside of the marriage bed, it could be pornography or other types of things that are not specifically adultery, would be in, in view there. So even on the most traditional readings of that passage, there are numerous views. And it's interesting because it seems like Jesus is giving one exception. And, and I don't think Jesus in Matthew 5 is giving a comprehensive list. He's not, he's not speaking in a moment of giving a comprehensive list. He's challenging some of the, the views of the day. So he, he's saying there's adultery, and then the Apostle Paul's referring to being abandoned. And so it seems like both, uh, both Jesus and Paul have other views in mind, and that it, divorce is an option. Um, so that's kind of a 35,000 foot view on the Bible on divorce very quickly. I think that's a really good summary for the amount of time you had. I've read a lot of this, a lot of this matter, and I couldn't believe you could summarize it so well, so quickly. <laughs> Thank you. I've been thinking about this for a little bit. There's a really good book I want to get the word out on. He was one of my students. He, he did his D-Min thesis. His name's Todd Bordeaux. And the book's called, What Did Jesus Really Say About Divorce? And it was a lot of his working with him on his book and well, his then thesis and now book, which is what did Jesus say about divorce? That was really helped me summarize and think through it. So I want to make sure he gets credit for helping me summarize it for for the podcast audience. Yeah. So I'm just wondering when why does it seem like there is this kind of like gray area then when it comes to domestic violence being a reason um, for you know, a marriage between two Christians to end? Is it because of the fact that it's not that particular language, you know, domestic violence or some other like explicit reference to violence is not named directly? Yeah, I think so. I'm just surprised that anyone would say, and I'm not, I'm not saying this in a condescending way. I don't mean it like that, but it's going to sound like that. I'm surprised that anyone reads the Bible and says there's no grounds for divorce. I mean, when you have Moses, Jesus, and Paul clearly giving guidelines, and, and Jesus and Paul aren't removing Moses's guidelines. It seems like, and it's always in protection of the woman, it, it, it seems like you have to impose onto the text something else that's not there. So I'm, if the text is authoritative, and we, the whole goal is to read the whole Bible all together, and the Bible interprets itself, and if you're confused about one passage, look to other passages. Well, Matthew 5 would cause you to look at Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, which has another reason for divorce, and Exodus 21, and Deuteronomy 24. And, and so I think what's happening is sometimes people like to out-conservative the Bible, and maybe it's a little bit of that where it, 
specifically because d- domestic abuse is not mentioned. And so it feels like they would be going, be- and I, I appreciate I appreciate the desire to stay close to the authority of Scripture and what Scripture says. The impulse behind that of, well, the Bible doesn't actually allow that. Behind that's a good impulse in general, in general, of wanting to give authority to the to Scripture and not just to every whim. But, but it sure seems that when you look at what the Bible says about violence and abuse, it's pretty shocking. I'm thinking of like Psalm 11.5, the psalmist referring to God says, I hate the one who does violence and abuses. I mean, some people want to quote Malachi 2, God hates divorce. Well, if that's how that's interpreted, which I already put a question mark next to, well, you can find a whole bunch more passages that say God hates the violent and the oppressor. That's all throughout Scripture. It's hard to miss. And so I think a little bit of what's playing into it is um, the Bible doesn't mention abuse as a way specifically, even though Exodus 21 leans towards that and other ones do. But also, I think it might be a little bit of how male privilege works itself out in giving the benefit of the doubt to male leaders and men who are some interpret to be the leaders of their household and how and specifically how that plays out. It doesn't seem as gray as the rest of the Bible talks about when you look for what does the Bible say about abuse, violence and oppression? God's pretty clear on that. He's not a fan of it. And he wants people to be able to protect themselves and be safe. There's nothing wrong spiritually with the person who is looking for relief from abuse and suffering. You're not extra godly because you keep on submitting yourself to it. We have example after example in Scripture. David avoided abuse. Jesus got away from violence. The Apostle Paul did. Now, of course, we we do suffer in this life, and sometimes we are called to suffer in general for the sake of the gospel. But there's nothing... It's not a deficiency of one's spirituality because they avoid suffering and especially oppression and abuse. Culturally, we seem to be in a different place as far as how we understand how husbands should treat their wives and that it seems like it's kind of evolved significantly in the past hundred years or so. What do you see um, that has changed and how has it changed? The picture of what the Bible says, how men are supposed to treat their wives is really shocking. When you have Ephesians 5, everyone talks—it's easy to talk about Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands, and sometimes the conversation stops there. And that's how male privilege would work out. If you read Ephesians 5 and only say wives submit to your husbands and don't read Ephesians 5.25 that says basically uh, husbands love your wife the way Christ loved the church, well, implicit in that is lay down your life, be willing to die for the flourishing of your wife— I mean, and I'm not trying to be cute about this, but I'd much rather have to just submit and not have to lay down my life. I mean, the call to the husband is, uh, you know, being a little bit playful, be a doormat. She, you know, she's called to submit. You're called to go extra and lay down your life for her. Or First Peter 3, 1 and 7 does the same thing. First Peter 3, 1 says almost the same thing. Submit, you know, wives submit to your husbands. Well, 7 says husbands honor your wives. And if I am correct, the word for honor in there is the same word that Peter used before earlier in the epistle for honoring the king and honoring the emperor. So that word honor is not like a pat on the head and a condescending or patronizing. It's built into honor her the way you would honor an authority over you. Um, and, and so the Bible's really noteworthy. So I think I think that's been a part of it. I think more and more people are hopefully being influenced by reading the entire text, not just you know, cherry-picking submissive, submission passages. 
But I also think culturally some things have changed where there's an, a there's more of a sense of awareness to how power is used, how hierarchy plays itself out. And, and there's a whole movement on biblical marriage. And I think some of that can be really good of actually calling husbands to actually read the passages and take them seriously on what, what that looks like and not just talking about the submission passages. Those passages are really powerful when you read them in their full context. I think a lot of the tensions we, we some couples experience in marriage between male roles and female roles could be solved easily if men would just obey what the Scripture, <laughs> scripture says and <laughs> spends the most time talking about. In fact, that passage in Ephesians is like four or five verses telling the man how he should behave to the one verse that the woman is how to behave. And the thing about First Peter is the whole idea of First Peter is that it's supposed to be so shocking that the pagans will say, what in the world's going on in your life that you're doing this? That you, that the, the Christians in marriage honor one another mutually in such a way that it's supposed to actually be so shocking to them. They're going to, they're supposed to say, what is the reason for the hope that you have to re- live a life like this? And so there's a, there's an evangelistic and missional quality to what this should look like. And I, I think another piece of what has changed in, in kind of a little bit of a negative way is that marriage has turned into the picture of romance. There is some romance in Scripture as a picture of marriage, but I think uh, our culture has added to marriage and heightened view of the romantic and the sentimental and uh, marriages for my personal fulfillment or my enrichment. So there's a way that marriage has been distorted to be in a consumer culture, something that makes me feel fulfilled. And when I'm not feeling fulfilled, I can get out because my fulfillment's the most important. So there's also something happening with marriage on the kind of consumer, individualized sense at the same time. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. I'm here with Tom Schreiner, one of the translators of the Christian Standard Bible, and he talks about the complexities and challenges of translating a word like saved. Jesus says, your faith has saved you, but it's just as well translated, your faith made you well. So, you know, what looks like a pretty simple decision, the word save means save, but actually in English, is it better to say your faith made you well? But then is there a double meaning or a deeper meaning at least in the text so that you want to retain that word saved? Because really both translations are good. And and you run into that again and again and again. They're, they're just tough decisions to make. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com slash ct. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. I think it's important to clarify, and I've been, I wanted to insert this in the conversation at some point, 
there is uh, a criticism of Christian views of marriage, biblical views of marriage, that seem to imply that if it wasn't for the Bible's view of marriage, uh, we wouldn't have so many Christian men uh, abusing their spouses. And they've actually done some sociological studies on this, especially Brad Wilcox, uh, found some very interesting things about evangelicals and their views of uh, marriage and their relationships with their spouses. And in general, yes, if you're an ev- a conservative evangelical and you have a traditional biblical view, uh, however you define that, but it's a bib- you consider it a biblical view, and you don't go to church, you're more likely to abuse your, bi- your spouse. And then if you are an evangelical who believes in a biblical view of marriage— how it's even if it's a matter of you know believing the man is the head, and you attend church regularly, you're much less likely than almost any other group to abuse your spouse. So the issue is not your theology of marriage; it's actually your practice of your faith combined with the theology of marriage that makes or breaks a marriage on these grounds. I love Brad Wilcox. I actually taught with him in the sociology department at the University of Virginia, and he was doing that research. Years ago when I was there, his research is fascinating on the importance of exactly what you said, the practice of your faith and its influence on marriage, but also the protection and flourishing of of wives and children. I mean, I know that from personal experience. I mean, I've attended our men's retreat at our church many times, and one of the main topics of conversation is how how do we lay our lives down for our wives? It continues to surprise me how important that is to Christian men, uh, at least in the circles I travel in. And when that becomes the conversation, it's that backdrop that makes domestic abuse so shocking. Exactly. That's the backdrop of what the what we're called to do and how Christ loves us and what our receiving of God's love to us and how Jesus laid down his life and how we are to love one another. When that's the backdrop and you see the belittling, the spiritual abuse, the physical abuse, the sexual abuse that some men perpetrate and find Bible verses to uh, proof text their behavior, that's what is so shocking. That's why your response to Patterson's thing is sadness or mine's disappointment, and I'm afraid for the women that are influenced by that type of um, advice. It, it's, it is it's a stark difference to the biblical trajectory and vision for marriage. So given what Mark was saying right there about you know, we're being in this men's ministry at his church where there's a lot of just calls to to live out scripturally um, your role as a husband. What what type of like blind spots, I guess, does that kind of enable, right? We I mean, we all know that there are plenty of abusers that can hide in plain sight in churches. And so what's going on there that we're often missing? Well, male privilege. Well, male privilege is just the assuming of the the world of men as the norm for everyone. And as a guy who loves my wife and my two daughters, who are little girls, I see how it plays out in really simple ways and how people will uh, walk into a room and ask my name and then maybe shake my wife's hand but not ask for her name or not even address her. And that's normal for her, let alone the just assumptions of my um, capability um, of being either smarter or more gifted at basically anything even though my wife's an expert on all of these fields. So that's one way that male privilege works itself out. Another thing that I think is overlooked is that women who are abused, this is just the spiritual dimension that as a pastor that is just heartbreaking to me. Most women who go to church who are abused, they assume it's their fault. They assume that this is uh, God's will for them, that God wants them to bear up underneath this, that this is part of God's plan for their life. They'll, they'll rationalize this as God's will or God's way to teach me a lesson. Religious women are the ones who suffer in an abusive marriage 
longer than non-religious women, and they experience more intense abuse than non-religious women. So there's something about what's happening in the religious communities that are causing women, and it's not just perseverance, but causing women to stay in violent situations longer and suffer more abuse. Most women assume some version of karma, that this is happening because they had premarital sex, because they had an abortion when they were 16, uh, because they know that they, you know, they're, they're bad wives. The list of reasons that most women assume why they're suffering almost always point back to them first. And rarely, rarely do I bump into someone who uh, starts with, well, it's not my fault. They assume it's their fault. And so I think there's something that's missed by many churches. And that's why there's so much silence. There's so much shame surrounding domestic abuse. Now, my, my wife is a stay-at-home and work-at-home wife who does uh, some schooling. We do a hybrid program. You know, they go to school two days, and they're, they, the girls are at home three days. And so I'm not knocking that. But when, when the church and you know, the Christian faith only gives women the role of staying home and raising the children and not outside of the home, when that's the only vision that seems to be celebrated, and then when the marriage seems to be falling apart, even though it's not falling apart, husband's dismantling it. It's not, but she, that that identity of what it means to be a successful spiritual woman in a marriage with the children and the home being unified and peaceful. When 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 a husband starts abusing, uh, it starts undermining that also. So there's shame involved for numerous reasons. Not just because of the spiritual reasons, but also because they feel like failures. You know, maybe I should have known better. I chose this man. You know, I must be stupid. What in the world's going on? There's just a world of shame crashing in on these women, and the church too often misses it for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and let me speak to the male part of that. Uh, I think there's a certain what I might call physiobiological response men have to crisis situations or to uh, disagreements. Because of our muscle mass, our testosterone, our whether it's cultural or spiritual, I don't know. I, I do see men have a have an issue with pride, and when that when that gets tested, our reaction is to push back really hard, and that pushback often includes either verbal shouting, yelling, but for some men, it moves over into the area of the physical. They want to hit something, and sometimes that something they hit ends up being the spouse. It's just, I think it's it's a very complex thing that goes on in a man who does this. But I think we need to recognize it's not just something, I don't know, irrational. That there are there are causes for it that can be actually addressed and looked at. Yeah, and in addition, I love this. I, you keep on bringing up all the sociology and cool biology stuff, which I'm really at home at and appreciate. There, there's even research on brain damage and how and Paul Tripp, he told a story, just a horror story of this wonderful husband who, I think he fell off a ladder, hit his head, and it changed his behavior, and he became more violent and Thankfully, they did some brain scanning and found out what it was, and they actually they dealt with it biologically. Now, I don't want to turn to every abusive situation and blame it on the brain, but there are some physiological responses that are are tragic like that, and and thankfully the pastors got involved and dealt with it. When people talk about well, you know, the the man, and this goes back to the biological, something to counter the biological a little bit is there might be an impulse to to hit something, but. What's noteworthy is that many men who abuse, uh, you'll, you'll notice physically when they are harming that person, the woman or their children, they usually physically harm them in places that don't show bruising, usually in the abdomen area or on the head. So there's actually a rational, they're not irrational, they're actually very planned out and very rational. 
when you start noticing that the physical trauma is usually done in a place that's covered by clothing or hair, it's not an irrational outburst. It's actually very controlled and very purposeful. And usually the anger is done as frequently, not usually, but abuse is not just physical. There is verbal, emotional, psychological, and spiritual abuse. And sometimes uh, physical abuse starts out as like a don't make me do that again, or sometimes it escalates to it. But when physical abuse does take place, it's not usually just enraged. So, I mean, we're trying to talk about kind of like a profile of people who end up abusing their spouses. From what I understand, too, many of them are often really great at socially manipulating situations and convincing their spouses and other leaders that they've had a change of heart. Many of us Christians really firmly believe that God can change people's hearts. And so how do we kind of gauge true repentance here? An abuser, and this is the same thing with child sexual abuse, the perpetrator of violence and oppression are usually very masterful at social interactions. Uh, For example, the average abuser of uh, children sexually have 120 victims. So they're used to getting away with it. They know how to build empathy and cover their bases. And so those who misuse power and use violence and oppression actually frequently are very good at social interactions. Now, the perpetrator is masterful at blame shifting. That's one thing. And they're very insecure. And so out of insecurity comes this posturing of strength, uh, usually to other people and to the spouse. But also they're masterful at blame shifting, both in convincing themselves that they're not to blame, convincing the abused that they were to blame, and also convincing the social networks surrounding them that there's an, they're, that they're not to blame, that there's an excuse for why they responded like that. And also they'll share the blame somehow, very gently share the blame. And usually it's because the wife uh, pushed his buttons or didn't do this or did, or did this. And they're masterful at getting empathy and false repentance or worldly sorrow. They know how to uh, posture repentance. And so I think the question about gauging true repentance is huge because if you know word gets out, you know police make an arrest, or finally uh, the the woman says something, she gets the cur- courage and bravery to finally say something to someone she trusts, and the man gets confronted. You'll most likely either just he'll snap and just go away, or you'll see quick displays of humility and repentance. And so, true humility and true repentance to me would look like submitting to the church and legal authorities. You know, because spousal abuse or domestic abuse is also a crime. It's not just a sin. So if they don't submit to the civil responsibilities and consequences, as well as the ecclesial consequences, that does not look like true repentance. A posture of humility in general would be important. A sustained change of behavior. And that one's scary because domestic abuse is one of the one of the crimes and sins that has the highest recidivism, meaning there's not a lot of movement and transformation. And I believe in transformation. I'm a pastor, and uh, that's my heartbeat is that God doesn't leave us to our own devices. But what scares me is that partially because abusers are narcissists, and narcissism and domestic abuse are two of the hardest to see real transformation. And I think um, accountability would be another marker of true repentance, that if the wife chooses to stay in the marriage or at least pursue, uh, not not pursue divorce, but give it a chance, if if that man is not willing to have extra eyes on the marriage and have avenues for her, for the woman, for her safety and for his accountability, if he bucks 
at there being more accountability, then you, we might not be looking at repentance. At that point, once you've crossed that line of abuse, you have forfeited the right to not have accountability. And there might be church discipline involved, depending on the church, if the church does church discipline, and, and going along with that. And, and that would be part of submitting to the ecclesial authorities. You know, I, I know that pastors all the time would might bring in two people who are at odds with each other, you know, sit them down, talked about what happened, and then, you know, if there's contrition on some side, not like there would be no consequences, but for the most part, you would you might see the situation as resolved. But in this instance, the stakes are a lot greater and it's not sufficient to just kind of accept what someone's saying that they've changed at face value. You think pastors who read the Bible and studied theology would be aware of the human condition, because we have a whole category called sin, and sin is pervasive in the way it tricks us and deceives us. And I'm, I'm just disappointed that too many Christians seem to be naive about the human condition and the effects in our doctrine of sin. And if the doctrine of sin is true, I mean, that's what makes me suspicious of myself and my own desires. And that's, that's why I need regular uh, confession and repentance for worship and, and accountability. In, in relationships. So when there's um, issues of domestic abuse, domestic abuse is not a moment for marriage counseling. Uh, what needs to happen is separate counseling. That's not a marriage issue. That's actually an abuse issue. So the survivor of abuse needs their own counseling and the perpetrator needs their counseling. It might become a marriage counseling situation. But to just go, oh, this looks like repentance. Let's just move forward with it and blow past all of these markers. And, and going back to the kind of the biological and sociological that Mark is bringing to the table really helpfully, just the research says that if uh, that's the most volatile time, one of the most dangerous times is for the wife. And sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes it's the man being abused by the woman. That's a whole different podcast. Um, but the wife Telling someone, once there's eyes on it, it can make the man want to have more control. And once it's out there, that's actually a dangerous time for people. It's a dangerous time for the wife. It's a dangerous time for the, the people that are helping that abused spouse. It's actually much better for the police to be involved. And I can give you some statistics later on why to call the police first. But for pastors to get in there and just blow past it and either just with being naive or worse, stupid, let me, let me qualify that, shallow theology. Um, <laughs> I've, I've heard this out of, out of the mouth of many women from one, they all went to one church. It was when my wife and I were in Virginia, and there were three or four women who all came from the church, and this pastor said to them all about domestic violence, Jesus's wounds were redemptive, huh, were redemptive, for the salvation of the world, maybe your wounds will be redemptive for your marriage. And to put the weight of abused women with that kind of horrible theology, um, that's irresponsible. That's not the work of a shepherd. And that's not just naive. There's malpractice taking place at that point to, to tell a woman to just turn the other cheek and suffer the abuse because this is how God's going to restore your marriage, to put that on her and to not call that man on his sin and his crime is irresponsible. That's so, oh, that's, amen is about all one can say. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that, Justin. I appreciate that. I, I'm wondering, it, it can just get so endlessly complex because given what we've talked about earlier, it can take a, a, a true active courage and vulnerability for someone to to share that this is even happening, much less 
decide that they would like to to leave this particular situation as well. And and so I'm wondering what what can churches do in this particular instance? I mean, let's pretend that this is like a family that, you know, is is a part of the church community and if you're looking for someone who's trying to kind of get off the radar of another person, you know, there is a level of like privacy or secrecy that's involved as well. We we have all heard stories of women who get stalked or women who get restraining orders um only to watch them broken and and sometimes you know end up shot and killed what is what does that look like for the for the church to help in that separation plan the most dangerous time for everyone involved is when a woman starts planning and the guy can figure it out because his desire for power and control increases and that's when violence escalates so i think one of the most important things and that is and this was an article that was with you know on ct Christianity Today, I think it was in the January, February 2015, and uh, we were a part of a, a series or an article that was done on different views. I want pastors to get authorities involved. One of the first things is if the woman wants it, I, I always encourage, because when a woman's being abused, her agency has been taken away from her. That's what that's what abuse is doing, is taking away her agency. So I never just call, unless there's children involved, and I, I should, but I usually encourage the 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 abused spouse to contact the authorities and to file a police report. And the police are the best first responders because they know how to deal with an act of violence. And they know that violence will likely occur again unless it's stopped. And they can help with the immediate care. And they know where the emergency shelters are and medical care and legal support. And there's some research on how important it is for police to actually be involved. Women who report their abuse to authorities are far less likely to be assaulted again. Specifically, there was some research by the Bureau of Justice Statistics found that 41% of wives who did not report their abusive husbands to the police were attacked within six months versus 15% of abused wives who did uh, report their abusive husbands. So 41% if you don't versus 16%. Just contacting the police is noteworthy or the authorities. There's actually some research that were done with, with survivors of domestic abuse, and they asked them, who was the who did you think would be the most helpful? Did you think that, you know, pastors, therapists, who did you think at the top of the list were pastors that they thought would be most helpful? And then counselors, and then some other people, and then at the bottom were police. And so police were at the bottom of the list on who they thought would be helpful. Then they asked who was actually helpful. And police and counselors were actually at the top of the list. And there are some problems with police. Um, I can tell you horror stories about abusive police officers or other things that they do. They sometimes escalate a situation. At the bottom of the list of people who were actually helpful after other were pastors. Pastors were not helpful. So what a church can do is learn about domestic abuse, learn about the dynamics of that type of dysfunction and relationship and misuse of power. I would love for pastors to study. This is not something that's usually taught in most seminaries. Uh, thankfully, I teach at seminaries that allow this to be taught. Gordon Conwell, actually, once a year, I teach a class on the gospel, the kingdom of God, and abuse, and helping train pastors to think through the issue. And so I think pastors need to work with women on a safety plan. And just to get really practical, um, in the back of our book, Is It My Fault? Hope and Healing for Those Suffering Domestic Violence, we have in the appendix, a 15-page safety plan that goes through really, I mean, 
specific things like where's your passport? Where are your birth certificates and your marriage certificates? Where do you have any money? Who can you call? I mean, just 15 pages of questions to make a safety plan. And thankfully, you don't have to buy the book to get it. Moody just I, I asked them and they were eager to do it. I said, can you make that available as a PDF so people can just find it and just use it? So they don't have to, I don't want people to have to buy a book to be safe. And if you could just give this away, please do. They did. So it's called Making a Safety Plan. If someone were to do an internet search called Making a Safety Plan, and you'll probably find it. If you put in Justin Holcomb, you'll definitely find it. So, But working with them on making a safety plan and also pastoring, the hard work of pastoral reassurance is going to be necessary. The, the abused spouse assumes it's their fault. They assume God's getting them back. So they need to hear it's not their fault that celebrate the courage it took for them to actually tell you, uh, sh- tell them you're concerned and then show them you're concerned. Build a network of support around that person that will help them financially, legally, medically. Develop a relationship with the, the local shelter for uh, domestic abuse. Every church I've served in, I call quickly when I get there. The Shelters for Help and Emergency and Sexual Assault Crisis Center and just say, hey, I just want to touch base. Uh, have all the numbers and just say, hello, my name's Justin. I'm a pastor at so-and-so. Develop that relationship because you might, you will likely need to use it. A woman will leave and go back in a, in a domestic violence situation an average of seven to 10 times. It's likely that uh, that that woman who told you that story and wants to leave will go back and come back. So you need to leave the door open. You, you be very careful about what you say about the abusing spouse. Uh, because she will likely go back and then tell that abusing spouse what you said. So you can say, hey, I, I'm, I'm so sorry this happened. This is a sin and it's a crime that should not be done. But the kind of piling on and going off on the guy, it actually doesn't help in the long run because it makes her feel stupid if she comes back again. And leave the door open because there's so much shame. Say, hey, if you go back, I don't blame you. Because most women who are abused are deciding between abuse and homelessness. And a woman who is going back is usually going back because of kids, because they want to, one, she loves that man, or she did love that man, and she's hopeful. That's not a, that's a beautiful thing for a wife to look at the abuse she's suffering and have a desire to hope that it could be better. And that's part of being the image of God. You can't blame her for that. So don't shame her for going back, because if you do, she might not come back to you the second time when she really needs help. Just the idea of a woman reaching out to her pastor and then not having the invitation to come back out of shame and feeling trapped and being stuck. And her only thought is, well, I can be homeless or I can get abused. And to not have hope because the church failed her, that's the heartbreaking side of all of this. So when I hear, when I hear Paige Patterson say this, I'm afraid for the women, but as you can tell, it is heartbreaking because I've seen those women. I've seen the women who have suffered under the the teaching that has been attributed to him in some of the statements that he said. That's what's just heartbreaking is seeing how the church has failed women, not actually done what Jesus did. If we look at the ministry of Jesus, you would see the opposite response to women who have suffered. Justin, I want to just talk about the the comments you made about the police really quickly, if only because I know that for, for some communities, the police are really a last option to call for a number of reasons. So, for instance, we know that 
people who may be undocumented may be nervous about calling the police, you know, for fears of getting deported or for how that could jeopardize their own family's immigration status. Um, and then we also have seen um, the police called at other various times and end up shooting and killing people, which I would imagine most of the time, even if they end up being a victim of abuse, they don't want their significant other to um, be shot or killed. And then I also know that sometimes this is the primary breadwinner for their family, too. So there's concerns about, you know, what this is going to mean financially if this person is not going to be working anymore. Law enforcement really doesn't feel like a live option to people. Is there another place that they can go to before that? Thank you so much for bringing this up. Yes, because it's easy for uh, a white guy to go around and say, hey, just call the police. They'll be fine. Don't worry about it. When there are many people who rightly are nervous and afraid to do that because the experience they anticipate is not one of help, but actually threat. And again, I'm not throwing rocks at the police. I got friends who are police, and I know some of the stuff they go through, and it is, it's heartbreaking to hear some of their stories. But yes, to answer your question, uh, this is where the church can get more involved and create networks of support. Family members become extremely important in these situations of who you can work with. E- emergency shelters. Emergency shelters, this is why they exist, to actually allow a woman to not have to pick between abuse and homelessness. My wife was a case manager for one, so they actually helped women uh, just get medical care and legal care, get jobs, find other places to live. And so uh, that's that's when I would um, lean toward um, emergency shelters first in, in those situations. And because of exactly what you said is they might they might plan on going back. So the idea of the breadwinner uh, being taken away for years is going to end up in homelessness and, and the cycle of poverty as well. So I think the the emergency shelter can be a place that doesn't trigger that domino effect that would cause them uh, fear to actually do, to just do nothing. The other thing I just wanted to add here was you were talking about the importance for church leaders to really educate themselves about these issues. And I, I think that for honestly, all of our listeners, some of whom are in official positions of church leadership, but also many of them are lay people, it's important to educate yourself too, because especially if you're a woman and if your church doesn't have paid leadership staff that are women, it's it's likely that the female victim is going to go to you before going to some man in authority. Yes. I'm in a situation where, in a church setting where uh, women are high profile, but there are some. So making sure that you have uh, some women who are clearly leaders in the church, whether they're ordained or not, just if they're not ordained, how do you highlight them to mark them as a safe place to go? Because it, it's very difficult for uh, someone suffering abuse to tell anyone. It's v- much more difficult for a woman to tell a man in authority about abuse, especially if that guy's in the church and he's a giver or a staffer or an elder or involved in any way in leadership in that church. That's how the male privilege can work out. And she's just assuming the good old boy clubs at work. All right. Well, I hope our listeners are able to take all of that in, but because it's a podcast, you can listen to it all again. Again, Justin has also contributed some of his writing to our website before, and I can put links to that in our show notes as well. So thank you so much, Justin, for all the resources and information, both theological and practical. That was really great to have you do that. And for anyone who has responses to that, you can send them to us via email. We're at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. 
And we are also on Twitter at CT Podcast. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. And we're going to ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. You ready, Mark? I'm ready, but it's kind of hard to make a transition after that topic. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. But now we'll you know how it best. feels to be Justin. <laughs> exactly. He has to go around. <laughs> do this all the time. Yeah. Well, I am trying to reignite a boyhood passion, a love for baseball. So I try to listen to a Cubs game, if I can, every day, or a part of it. And since I've been listening to the Cubs, they've won five straight. So I think the the talking about feeling responsible for the future of the world, I think if I don't keep listening to the Cubs, they're not going to do well. So Yeah, I was wondering why you kept giving me baseball. I was like, wait, Mark is not a baseball fan, though. No, I just thought, let's give it another shot. Has listening to it made you like it anymore? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You kind of get to know I mean, the players, well, right? Right. You get to know the players. Uh, you just get reacquainted. I mean, part of the frustration for me as a boomer is that I remember the days when there were only 16 major league teams. And it was easy to keep track of all the players. And now there are how many teams? 30. 30. And the teams cycle through players so quick, it's really hard to get an affection for a team that just can change radically from one year to the next. Well, I will say, unfortunately, you're becoming a fan you know, two years after they won the World Series. But many of the players who won the World Series with them are still on the team. Still with them, yes. Which is not always common. Mark, where can people find you? I edited a newsletter called The Galley Report. comes out on Fridays. Uh, You can subscribe to it by going to Christianity Today slash The Galley Report. That's G-A-L-L-I, in which I uh, make links to and comment on articles that I think are interesting. And apparently my readers do as well. Awesome. Justin? Well, mine is actually baseball also, but it's only because it's, you know, May. In June, it'll become tarpon fishing. But right now, it's baseball and football because I'm a Buccaneers fan and a Bra- Atlanta Braves fan. So for the Buccaneers, the draft just happened, and we actually filled all the holes that the team needed. Uh, we, they. Now, <laughs> this is how messed up I am, is that my emotions, my emotions actually ride on what boys do with you know football and baseball um, so my football team is strengthened in the braves they, they their rebuild has been happening for years it's been brutal and some of their young players that have been coming up through the farm system that we traded away our amazing players for they're actually on the field now so ozzy albies playing acuna. second base and, and acuna uh-huh so and my girls watch baseball with me so basically i show up and their girls go, hey, let's watch Ronald Acuna. And I'm thinking, this is a slice <laughs> of wonder that I get to watch baseball. <laughs> and they love Freddie Freeman and all that. So uh, when you asked what, what makes my heart happy and my precious moment is getting home in a few hours and turning on the game and uh, celebrating Acuna. I love and, and Morgan's over here correcting us on uh, she knows all the players. I think you might be the sports junkie because you know exactly how many baseball teams there are. <laughs> and, and you know about Acuna, but it sounds like you're a, a, a Cubs she, fan. No, she is not a Cubs fan. Do not mistake her for that. <laughs> I'm a Giants fan. But OK, I'm I'm actually okay. I talk about baseball a decent amount on the podcast. So I'll just save everyone this week for my precious moment, which, <laughs> by the way, Justin, before I, I skip over to mine book plugs or places where people can find you online yeah justinholcomb.com justin h-o-l-c-o-m-b.com and on all social media platforms it's the same thing facebook twitter instagram justin holcomb 
my precious moment is something that happened a couple hours ago. I don't know if either of you guys have heard about this, but there is a new game out there called Fortnite. And by new, I mean, I'm pretty sure if you're a middle school or teenage boy, you've been playing it for months and it is now on my radar. So earlier today, I posted on Slack and asked people if they knew what Fortnite was. And it was amazing because two of my colleagues literally answered, do you mean two weeks? (laughs) Which I did not mean two weeks. And then somehow I convinced like seven people to play Fortnite with me over lunch. We were all really bad at it for the record. And it did not go super well, but it was really fun to try to play a video game, which is not really something that I normally do at all. I'm looking it up. I think I might. I don't play video games, but I might play this one. Okay, well, let's talk about it online after this. I mean, I'm open to getting better at things that I'm terrible at, but this was, you know. And you can play it with your, I mean, people like these games because you can play it with your friends, which is why we like played it during lunch. I don't have very many friends, so maybe playing video <laughs> <laughs> There you go. All right. Well, people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, which is where we ask you to rate and review the podcast if this is something that has been helpful or constructive for you. It's also available on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Most places where you'd want to get your podcasts, we are there. It is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred, and we will see you all next week.